Thank you all for being here today. We are so excited to have Julie here. As you can tell, you're all excited to be here too. Thank you so much for being here. Um, couple of announcements. If you would please make sure that whatever electronics you have are on silent, we would appreciate that. Um, also, we will continue to sell books after, but then Julie was going to start signing after we're finished with the program. So if you'll, in an orderly fashion, we'll figure out what that means when we, when we get through, when we get to that point. But you willing to stay long enough to sign everybody's book? Okay. Okay. So we'll make sure. We'll make sure. No way. <laughs> We, yeah, we didn't know. We didn't know. I, I heard she asked if you had read any of my books when you sat down. Is that right? Yeah. You tried. <laughs> but it's a little shaky sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, in case you don't know, Julie Heberlin, hometown girl, best-selling author. She has... <laughs> Your books have been, have been published in now 20, 20 countries. countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 20 countries. This is her fourth novel. It came out just a week ago, so we are right here, right on top of things. Your third book, Black Eyed Susans, has been optioned for a film. So Yes, I'll believe it when I'm walking down the red carpet. Not yeah. until then. Yeah. But, but there are people who, the people attached to it have made movies before. They're not just right. like out of, the, out of nowhere, right? <laughs> they, have, they have written the script. Um, it's Rod oh. Lurie uh, who did The Contender. I don't know if any of you know that. But he um, wrote it with his wife. Actually, she read it on their honeymoon and convinced him it should be their first project together. And so I tell people that his sex life depends on getting it made. <laughs> Well, we'll see. Huh? So anyway, and then Voltage Pictures, who did The Hurt Locker and Dolls Buyers Club, yeah. are financing. So it's hopeful. We'll see. Okay. Yay. Glad to know where that stands. Okay. So Julie has been on kind of a whirlwind over the last month or so promoting the book, and she spent some time in London um, doing a tour. You were at three or four different locations, I think, there in, in England. And I understand we heard something from someone in London. So, Chuck, I'll turn it over to you. I know this is the surprise. Uh, <laughs> so oh, no, he's sitting down. Of course. <laughs> Of course, we've been married 67 years, and I can't hear her anymore. So, there you go. Oh, is that what happens? I'm not used to this. Um, my name, in case you don't know, I'm known as Julie's father, uh, Chuck Heberlin, and my wife Sue is in the back. And we, uh, Julie, uh, we received a couple of uh, emails today, Twitter, uh, sort of Tweed-like emails. I don't know if you know what that is. <laughs> and um, 
I'm here to, uh, to share with you <coughs> those emails. Now, one was from the Queen of England. Queen Elizabeth II. Now, get with me here. For her closest friends, of which I consider me to be one, <laughs> she, um, she lets me call her Queen-E2. So I call her Queenie 2 so we received, we received um, an email from Queenie <coughs> and also uh, an email from John Cornyn and um, Ted Cruz, you'd be pleased to know. So if I may, I'll share with you the email that, uh, that my wife doesn't want me to read. <laughs> However, that's tough, Sue. This, this looks much longer than a tweet. So. Um, I received both of these emails today, one uh, early this morning and one late tonight. Uh, the one is from Queenie, too, and the other is from, as I said, from my esteemed uh, uh, senators, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn, or is it John Cruz and Ted I don't, and I don't think they know either. Well, this is what Queenie too had to say, Julie. First, give my congrats to Julia on her new book, Paper Ghost, and I wish her great success. Then she goes on to say, sorry she didn't have time to drop by the palace on her recent visit to London, but I've been told how busy she was. So I understand her dilemmas because I am quite busy tweeting starting at 3 a.m. each morning. <laughs> For heaven's sakes, even the birds that hang out on the palace grounds have begun tweeting day and night. They are driving me crazy. <laughs> but finally, please tell everybody that I'm sorry I could not attend the book signing tonight because of my tweeting schedule. <laughs> she closes, ta-ta, cheerio, your devoted friend, Queenie. <laughs> now this is what uh, John Cornyn and um, Ted Cruz had to say, Julie. Mr. Chuck, give Julia our congratulations on publication of her fourth book, Paper Ghost. Is this going to be political? No. No. <laughs> well, sort of. <laughs> Tell all we're sorry we could not attend due to our congressional commitments reading our president's tweeties. <laughs> Finally, we are pleased to report that both sides of the aisle reached a historic unanimous decision today, voting unanimously that Julia's book, Paper Ghosts, should have been titled Dead Ahead as proposed by you. <laughs> so, I told you I could get through this.
want me to? Oh, okay, sure. Um, okay, I can't even begin to describe what a beautiful feeling it is to see all your faces and um, how much I appreciate all your support. Sometimes I think Wise County is responsible for half of the word of mouth about my book and that Kristen Tribe is responsible for half the stories. I think there have been four mentions in the Star-Telegram uh, about this particular event. Um, Here's an example of what doesn't happen at other events. First of all, this absolutely incredible display, which is taken right from the novel, that is like a piece of artwork. Please come look at this. It's just fantastic. Um, you, you have such a fantastic library. And something else that wouldn't happen is that I was on Facebook with Suzanne Long Parker, and she knew I was a little stressed out, and she asked me if I needed anything. And I, she mentioned several things, including a casserole. And I said, well, I do love a good casserole, but I never expected her to bring one. <laughs> but she brought me a casserole. So thank you very much. And Dad, keep your hands off of that. So um, publishing is really a brutal business, and I like to say that. It took me 12 years to get to this point. So I like other writers in this room to know how very difficult it is, and it's very up and down. My husband can tell you that. And I wanted to tell you just a little um, anecdote that I think kind of illustrates that, which is when I was in London, one of the first things that happened, which was very exciting, is that the Times of London uh, made Paper Ghosts its thriller of the month and wrote like the most perfect thing anybody could say about it. And I'm going to read that to you. There's another side to this story, but I'm going to read this first. Okay, so they said, a rich hybrid work that's at once a zany, dialogue-propelled two-hander, I don't know what that is, a murder mystery, a road novel, a pair of psychological case studies, and a meditation on photography. It would make a fine indie movie, although screen adaptation would entail sacrificing Heberlin's evocative prose. So that was, you know, like a high, right? Two days later, The Guardian, one of my favorite newspapers in the world, uh, wrote that the conclusion may prove to be a damp squib. I can say that to all of you because I know you're going to buy the book anyway. But of course... <laughs> Of course, I ran to Google to see what damp squib is, which I can't say in an English accent, which I'm sure is even more insulting that way. But, um, but it is an unexploded firework. So now my husband and I go around calling things, and each other sometimes, a damp squib. <laughs> um, but, but I do want to thank this library, which is my favorite library in the world, which is where I began to, to read and love literature. Of course, not in this building, but the heart of it um, is where I began. And to Pat, one of my favorite librarians, and the entire staff, Denise, Chris, all of you, for always welcoming me so much. What a resource this is for your community. And then I want to, um, of course, thank my mom and my dad, even though he did that. <laughs> They are both um, almost 88, I hope you don't mind me saying that, and still living in the house where I grew up, which is where I'm going to lay my head tonight. And uh, I know how lucky I am to have that and all of your support. So, And then I also want to um, thank someone who isn't here, Martha, who was my first librarian. Um, who um, I feel like is here in spirit and fed my early obsession uh, for, lo for loving books. 
and uh, also to Joanne Baker, my English teacher, who allowed me to um, write a report on Jack the Ripper and include very grisly crime scene photographs, which I think was very forward thinking and kind of a sign of what was to come. So anyway. Okay. Well, Julie, I, I had the opportunity to read an advanced reader's copy so that I could put together some questions for us tonight, but I'm, I'm working really hard not to give away anything, so you'll notice that some of these questions are kind of oddly phrased, and that's why, because I don't want, want to give away anything. I don't want you to lose that surprise value of getting to read it and find out everything along the way, but... I'm hoping that these will give you some insight as you read. So first of all, Julie, the narrator of this book, whose name we don't learn until near the end, is kind of a conundrum. When I was reading, I was never quite sure how reliable she is. So the story is that she was 12 years old when her sister disappeared, and for the 12 years since then, she's been obsessed with finding her sister's kidnapper, maybe murderer, she doesn't even know, and that's not exactly the basis for growing us into a sane, rational adult. So, she's kind of an interesting mix of fears and risky behaviors, so tell us how her character developed. I, I wanted to write um, kind of a spooky slow dance between two characters. One, um, a possible serial killer who claims dementia, an old man, and then the other, this uh, very obsessed young woman who thinks, has been, has been planning to find him since she was 12 years old um, and find out what happened to her sister. So she draws three red dots on a Texas map like drops of blood and uh, throws him in the car and takes him across Texas to examine cold cases um, that he's connected to in the hopes that she will find out the truth about her sister. And um, I wanted her not to have a name because I thought that added to the mystery of who she was. It's also a little bit of an ode to Rebecca, one of my favorite books which I read in this town on the window seat that my dad um, built for me. Um, and I wanted you to be wondering around chapter four, do I know her real name? I, I don't think I know her real name, which I think is about where maybe you would figure it out. But it's, it is, this book is sort of about the um, obsession, a dark obsession and the destructive nature of grief and how that plays out. Um, people have asked me um, what kind of a crazy person would get in a car with a serial killer, and I sort of always rely on that Isabel Allende quote, which is, nice people with common sense do not make good characters. They only, <laughs> they only make good former spouses, so. Um, but I think she is who I wish I would be. Um, if someone I loved died this way, then I would go to the ends of the earth to find what hap out what happened. Okay, that other character, the um, Carl Lewis Feldman, Feldman um, was in his early years a well-known documentary photographer who may or may not be suffering from dementia. He may or may not be a serial killer. So tell us how that uncertainty developed into his character. Well, I, I wanted to use uh, dementia as a plot device, um, sort of as, a, I guess, a metaphorical fog over the whole book. Um, and I wanted 
um, everyone to be unsettled all along the way, to not know who was telling the truth. Is he telling the truth? Is she telling the truth? Who, who am I supposed to root for here? Do I like him? Should I like him? Um, and then dementia, I feel like, is such a pervasive issue um, in our it's obviously such a pervasive issue. And so many friends I know have family who is dealing with it. And I wanted to reflect kind of its sadness and cruelty and then also some of the comedy that comes along, along with it. And in all my books, I like there to be um, something beyond just the plot. Um, in Lie Still, it was date rape. In uh, um, Black Eyed Susans, it was the march to the Texas death penalty and using mitochondrial DNA to, to identify old bones. And in this one, um, it is both dementia and photography. Okay, speaking of photography, as a photographer, Carl really was an, an award-winning photographer in his early years, and he's quote, you quote him as saying, photographs are both mirrors and windows, the story the photographer tells and the infinite interpretations of strangers. The perfect shot lives, breathes, expands. People think music is the universal language. It's photography. So... Do you believe that? And are you a closet photographer? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I, I do believe that. And I, uh, I think photography was a way to make him a more interesting character. Um, I don't like bad guys, if he is a bad guy, to be, um, uh, just, it, just to be very black and white. Um, so that made him much more interesting to me. And I... Um, it's interesting, I took a class in college and I was blowing it off, it was a photography class, and uh, I was making a C and I had a very, very little time to do the final project, just a weekend. So I ended up going to this nursing home when privacy laws were not so vigilant and I, uh, I showed up with my camera, they let me in and I explored that um, nursing home and I can still remember the um, old woman with um, hands that were really like maps, reading braille, and a woman lying um, on a couch under a cross and under a, a, a clock, which somehow felt very profound to me. And so something transformed when I went into that nursing home and looked through the lens. And I um, ended up making an A in the class, and the, and the, uh, the uh, professor said, you know, you should be a photographer, which obviously is not the path that I chose, but I feel it's like a path not, not taken for me. Um, I also feel like I have photography a little bit in my um, DNA because my grandfather was a photographer and uh, he shot um, and lit the coal mines in, in Virginia and he was also a portrait photographer and um, for just a very small period of time, he was a crime scene photographer. And so we talked about, I'm just gonna read this piece that I wrote um, that is an essay about me being a child and seeing that book, um, which maybe feeds my dark obsession for <laughs> photography. Mom and dad, you haven't heard this yet. <laughs> so I, I wrote this piece for um, a, a newspaper in the UK um, so I, I typically don't like to read from my books because I'm afraid of giving something away or out of context. It just seems kind of boring sometimes, so we'll see. This is called Ghost in the Basement. The steps to my grandfather's basement were steep for a little girl hugging the wall on the way down. His basement was damp and dark, 
a scary world carved into the side of a Virginia mountain. It sat right above the hell that adults like to talk about. Things crawled in the dark shadows. Yet, it was one of my favorite places. When I pulled the chain at the bottom and light scattered the shadows, it was as if I'd entered my grandfather's brain. Here is where he painted portraits and abstract blobs of color on wooden easels, cleaned guns and camera lenses, enlarged pictures, hung old tools with big teeth. Here, in an old trunk, is where he stored a grim set of photographs. When I was a little girl, I wasn't a particularly brave one. I was afraid of roller coasters, backflips, horror movies, even the wall beside my bed. At night, after my mother turned off the light, I'd bang my fist on the wall to be sure it was solid. <laughs> I was certain I would slip through the wall while I slept, and no one would know where I'd gone tumbling. Nevertheless, on once-a-year visits to my grandfather in the Smoky Mountains, I opened the little door off his kitchen and risked tumbling. I wasn't called by the washing machine, which gurgled down there, too. I was called by his art, by the creepy and intimate chaos, and by a particular little black book about eight by ten and two inches thick. It was held together with a snap that always made me think twice before I opened it. It was a book of horror a book of sorrow, a book of death, of dead people. And my grandfather was on the other side, looking through the lens. For a short stint, my granddaddy, a professional photographer, shot crime scenes and unusual deaths in a rural area. He was called the county morgue photographer. This book was a portfolio of people who left the earth in confusion and violence. Horror can wash away the picture, they say, but not always the feeling. I remember mostly fuzzy things from secretly looking at that book. A dead man on an autopsy table. A live dog by a body of water. The idea that the dog belonged to someone who went in and didn't come out. I remember only one victim with perfect clarity. A young woman, limbs sprawled at right angles on kitchen tile. High heels, her blood pooled and black because it was a black and white photograph the feeling that her husband got away with it. My grandfather was a wonderful man. He shot documentary pictures of coal mines, sang a, twa a twangy Amazing Grace, fostered Eagle Scouts, told dirty jokes, drew snowy scenes in charcoal pencil, smoked rich cigars, wrote letters to me in perfect calligraphy, drank too much, loved so hard he divorced and remarried my grandmother. And yet, he also was capable of shooting a photograph of a murdered woman with a cold and realistic eye. He died when I was 19. If I could go back and be that little girl, I'd ask him, how did you do it? Maybe he'd take me on his lap and ask, why did you open the book? Every time I did, it was a punch in the gut. Every time, it was a wave of intense sadness and guilt. Every time, I had to shut the book quickly and put it back before I finished. The murdered woman trailed after me when I climbed back up the stairs to the warmth of the kitchen. So did the questions. What was her name? Who loved her? Who, what came before this picture? What came after? I just had that single flash. I saw her framed in the calculating, detached way that only the police and the camera and the killer ever would. I was a child, 
an audience of one in a cold basement. I will never forget her. That is what old photographs do. They become paper ghosts. They sink into our souls. They make us ask questions, but they don't tell us their secrets. Thank you for sharing that with us. Paper Ghosts has one photograph that kind of goes through the whole book, and you'll get to see this if you have your book. It's smack in the middle. But this photograph of two little girls in the forest, the, the actual paper ghosts, is an integral part of the story from beginning to end. So where did you get the idea for this photo and how it serves the story? Um, it, was, it was a very roundabout way. But the, Carl, as a photographer, his work is somewhat inspired by the work of Keith Carter, who is an East Texas photographer who shoots very surreal and uh, creepy images. And I knew that I wanted photographs in the book, but I knew how hard it was going to be to convince Random House to uh, put a photograph in the middle of an adult thriller. And uh, so I worked with a friend of mine, an extremely talented photographer named Jill Johnson, and uh, she taught me a lot more about photography, and she was a huge fan of Keith Carter. And there was this particular photo that inspired this photo of the little girls, her favorite picture of Keith Carter's, which is shot in a forest, and it has these little children in it that are kind of a blur of motion. Um, it's just a very eerie and, and interesting picture. And she said that I could tell this story, but before she was married, she and her uh, husband were at kind of a crossroads. And one night she was in tears looking through this book and he came to the house and she had stopped at this picture, um, particular picture, and he looked at it and he said, I think that's me. And it was. One of the children in her favorite picture was him. And he had he'd grown up in East Texas and had no idea that this photograph was taken. So um, that really spoke to me. Um, I liked I like the, you know, I think this is kind of a theme I like to play in my books, this mix of fate and randomness and God and how it all plays a role. So. Very cool. Thank you. Your other books have been set in Texas also, but they tended to focus on individual communities or locales. Paper Ghosts revolves around a Texas road trip. So how different was it to write characters traveling rather than characters staying put? And how did you choose the route? Which locale was your favorite to write about? Well, look behind me. This is, this is what, not as good as this, but this is similar to what was on my uh, kitchen wall for a year. Um, I, I got a huge Texas map and um, drew three red dots on it, and then I kept drawing jagged paths that this serial killer might take. Um, it changed you know, every week to something a little different. It, it did kind of freak out a plumber who came and, and asked me what it was, and I said it was the path of a serial killer. But, but anyway, so, um, but this book, it travels from the gray beaches of Galveston to Houston and Austin to the eerie desert near Marfa um, to the, you know, Piney Woods, the curtain of the Piney Woods, um, and... And though I did some research for the book and certainly went to some of these specific places, particularly Waco, uh, where I wanted to stand in the field of the Waco siege, um, which was a very 
kind of profound experience in itself. It was just this empty field um, with, and it, it really felt like it had ghosts. There was just a memorial wall there with the names of all the victims, the Branch Davidian victims. Um, and the names of the children were like sad poetry, Serenity Sea and Summer Startles. I mean, star Startle Summers. Um, it was, um, anyway, I'm sidetracking here, but most of the places I think I just knew because I'm a Texan, like you will know them. And um, you had asked me, I think, if there were Wise County places and there aren't in this book, but I hope that it feels really familiar to you because I feel like all of you will have been to these places as well. And when I wrote it, I never, the reason I made it a road trip is because I never wanted the reader or the characters to feel very settled and I wanted the landscape to kind of change with the mood of of Carl so I think that unsettled feeling worked really well, <laughs> <laughs> well one other thing is that I also wanted it to be very intimate and that was difficult to have a sprawling landscape and to try to have an intimate um, situation between these two and and so I think in the end um, it was the dialogue that helped and I think that's the thing that I always thought that was the thing I was absolutely the worst at but Carl was a great teacher I'd like to say so well I would I was talking to Denise today about this book and I said you know this would make a great two-person play where all you see is them in the car discussing whatever they're discussing and where they've just stopped and come from. So you, want, you should may, write that. We <laughs> may do that. So we were talking about rights. Can we just ask you and you can say okay? Is I that think right? so. I okay. think that's the way it works. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, another thing that I wanted to ask you about in the book, throughout we see the narrator has written from before her sister disappeared to after her sister disappeared, these things called her survival notebooks, where she's listing steps to help her deal with her fears. Where did that idea come from? Did you have survival notebooks? <laughs> no, but as we now know, <laughs> I pounded on my uh -huh. uh, bedroom wall. Um, those, those parts of the book were not in it until the very end. Um, and I looked back and I thought, you need to have a glimpse into who she was before she became this dark and obsessive character. So there's survival notebooks, uh, they're just really short passages. Um, they started when she was eight, long before her sister even disappeared. She, she had a lot of fears before her sister disappeared and her sister was kind of her hero and who she considered was um, the brave one. Um, but I also wanted to, in some ways, I think they inject a little humor and lightness into the book, which is something that I like to do with all of my books because while I'm writing this, it's, it's, uh, I know that I want relief from the darkness, so I have to assume that the reader does as well. So, For your previous books, you called on your journalistic skills to do some amazing in-depth research, and this book is no different. So tell us about the kinds of research that you did for writing this book. Um, I, um, I relied a lot on friends and their stories in some ways. Um, one of my friends um, has a, had a father uh, who would... Uh, uh, pick up rocks all the time and he thought they were gold and after he died she found these bags and bags of rocks in his um in his garage i had another uh 
friend whose um, mother was convinced that there was a ghost with her all the time. It was a little girl, and she was constantly mad at her because she uh, wouldn't fold clothes. <laughs> And because she wouldn't let her change the channel off the Lifetime Network. So, um, anyway, but, but they had nice moments with that, with that ghost, I think. Um, but I did read a book. Uh, one of the things I did do also was read a book, uh, Hallucinations, by Oliver Sacks, that brilliant neurologist. And uh, I found it really fascinating that most of us are supposed to maybe have some kind of a hallucination in our lifetime, and that most of us or at least more than half of us will um, think we see or hear someone we loved who is dead, and that that's normal and healthy, and that some people you know, have a loved one and talk to them all the time um, as if they're still there, and that's normal and healthy, whatever helps you live a productive life. So I found all that um, very uh, revealing. And then I, of course, you know, stared at lots and lots of photographs. <laughs> Well, there's quite a bit in this book about the dark web. Can you tell us anything about that, or can you not? You know, I didn't go too far into I, I, I went into the dark web a little bit, but I was afraid that someone was going to start knocking at my door, like the FBI. So I, I didn't go as, as, as far into it as I wanted. So. Okay, you, that's good. Is this the, <laughs> you, you had asked me if I, how I would disguise myself. If I were, you know, and I thought about how would I disguise myself? And I thought, well, I'd like to look like Charlize Theron or Grace Kelly. <laughs> and I would carry a clipboard because that's one of the things I learned, that if you want to look part of a scene, carry a clipboard because it looks like you have a reason to be there and a purpose. So Charlize Theron All right, with a clipboard. I'll keep that in mind. Okay. <laughs> All right. So if we see Charlize Theron with a clipboard, we know right. it's you, well, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. So... One more question about the book. Um, in return for agreeing to go on this road trip, Carl has a list of conditions that he wants met. And it includes food he wants to eat. It includes places he wants to go. It includes books he wants. Are any of those items your travel favorites or your favorites? My so favorites? there's all kinds of things that he includes on his, his yes, conditions. Yes, I would list. say 10, 15 onions and Mexican Dr. Peppers, for sure. I love both of those things. Um, but I wanted that list to be very eclectic and odd and confusing and sort of a puzzle for you to be looking at it to see if there were clues in that list. Yeah. Great. So, who are some of your favorite authors? I know you've already mentioned Rebecca as one of those books that was kind of influential. Yes. Um, um, and how did they influence you in your writing? Um, I, I would say my favorite thriller writers are uh, Tana French, because I think she writes original plots and has a very lyrical style. I do like uh, Gillian Flynn. She's very intimate and dark. I think. Um, Daphne du Maurier, as we talked about. Patricia Highsmith from Hales from Fort Worth. Um, Strangers on a Train, you know, all that. Okay. And then I think my favorite thriller of all time is probably Silence of the Lambs. I can still remember reading that outside with children laughing down the street and being scared out of my mind. So, um, so anyway, that takes a lot of skill. My favorite book is probably uh, John Irving's A Prayer for Owen Meany. And I, um, let me see if I can remember this first line, because I was recently reminded 
uh, this is my favorite line in a book. Uh, I think it's, um, I am doomed to remember a boy with erect voice, not because of his voice or how small he was or that he was, or because he was the instrument of my mother's death, but because he is the reason I believe in God. What a complete sentence that is for, for a novel. Um, I also like, uh, and my, one of my other favorite books of the last five years is probably Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. So I do like more high-minded literature um, as well when I have time to read it. I'm currently reading Bluebird, Bluebird, by, Bluebird, Bluebird by Attica Locke, which is a really great book, so I highly recommend that. So, so what can you tell us about the next book you're working on? The next book has sold, yay! <laughs> I, I have, I've sold two more books, and the next one, which I'm supposed to have finished in November, which will never, ever happen, don't tell my editor. Um, it's, because it's, you're spending your time with us. Thank right. you. There you go. I'll blame you. Um, it's called Lion, Lion's Eye, um, and it, a young girl um, is found in a sea of da dandelions on the side of a Texas road. Um, she only has one eye and she won't uh, speak. And so um, a beautiful widow is kind of thrown into the mystery of, of solving out, figuring out who, who she is. Um, and this, had, again, has started a lot more research, um, which is fascinating to me. Um, I have been interviewing an ocularist in uh, Dallas, and if you don't know what that is, that's okay, because I didn't know that either. Um, he, that is someone who makes prosthetic eyes, and he is—he treats a lot of children, or treats. He he, you know, creates these art pieces for these children, and they are able to go through their lives with no one knowing they have a false eye. He has done them for athletes um, who don't want people to know they have a false eye because they'll be guarded on the wrong side or you know something like that. He's done them for an Iranian princess whose husband would think she was damaged if he knew she had a false eye. I mean, this is how good he is. And he himself has a false eye, which um, he had, there was a ROTC accident when he was 17 and he was supposed to go to West Point. He was in at West Point and his entire life changed. And obviously something more beautiful. But I think one of the gifts that I have in writing is interviewing people like him who, um, you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people, the, you know, scientist who taught me about mitochondrial DNA and uh, was uh, responsible for all the uh, samples at 9-11 and spent years of her life identifying victims. These people just give me hope that our world is a great place and mostly more good than bad. So... Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you also, just so you know, you have been part of the next episode of Decatur Public Library's Long Overdue podcast. Our program tonight will be the episode, so that's why we're on microphones. And It's good that I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for being part of that. Dead ahead. Uh, actually, I would like to say... I, 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 would I would like to say if you tweet or Facebook about this library and how great it is after you leave here, I will buy drinks for everyone next time. Sorry, honey. I'm going to just say that. <laughs> and please look at this when Absolutely. you Absolutely. Thank you to Denise Herrera who, who made this happen. Thank you, Denise.
And if you'd like to, if you missed something in this conversation, if you'd like to go back, please go to our website, DecaturPublicLibrary.com, starting this Friday. You can pick up the podcast. You can listen to it all over again. Tell your friends who couldn't come. They can hear everything Julie said on the podcast. Okay. Thank you very much for being I, here. I really love you guys. Thank you so much for having me.